You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to the show. This is Eli Steenledge, and with me today is... Hi, I'm Mike. Uh, Jeremy's not with us this week, um, but he'll probably be back next time. Uh, today we are talking about uh, double identity movies, or kind of split personality films. And uh, our main discussion will kind of focus on Psycho uh, versus Bates Motel, and the kind of difference in different generations of telling that story, of basically Norman Bates. Uh, between the two. So we're kind of talking about those as the focus, but double identities in film in general and what that kind of looks like. You should, yeah. should have started the show with a good evening in your best Hitchcock voice. Good evening, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll cut that in later. <laughs> we'll do that. I don't know how good my uh, Hitchcock voice is. Uh, yeah, so we're kind of focused on some of those. I think we're both pretty big fans of Hitchcock in general between his different films and would you say psycho is one of your favorites one of my favorites or, probably yeah. my favorite um definitely the one i'm most familiar with out of his mm-hmm. his library yeah i don't know that i would say that it's definitely my favorite but it definitely stands out in his collection of films like it still just has that unique feel to it um pretty fond of like vertigo and like uh rear window Mm-hmm. Another big one. But I think Psycho did really hit the kind of zeitgeist for that uh, that generation in his films. Yeah. Um, it was really important to to him. as very popular as one of his, his most popular films. So I think that's important as well. Uh, we can kind of dig into things here, but kind of our main point of interest is how the different portrayal of genre conventions... Um, talking about kind of double identities or split, uh, split personalities changes with each generation and its meaning. So kind of asking like, how does the handling of double identities or the split personalities change with culture? Uh, mainly talking about here, like Norman Bates, how does his portrayal between Psycho and Bates Motel change? And my kind of way into this was if we think about, you know, looking at sort of monstrous creatures or something like vampires. You know, throughout the different generations, they mean different things to different people, whether it's, you know, fear of something sort of primal and instinctual um, or like lustful that it needs to be, you know, kept under wraps. Or as we progress forward, maybe talking about like HIV in the in the 70s through the 80s or something like that, the fear of like... Um, being infected by something changes with stuff. So I think we can think about maybe this idea of these split identities and personalities as something like this. I think it is often portrayed as something dark and uh, brooding. The idea that something is lies inside of you that is out of your control, Mm -hmm. but still such a part of a part of your being, you know? Right. I feel like, I mean, specifically with psycho, in 1960, when we when we're looking at, you know, the 
the source material for the film, um, the the history of filmmaking with Alfred Hitchcock, the suspense and the thrillers, mm-hmm. and the kind of semi-risque topics that he mm-hmm. covered in, in his shows and his movies, that it really kind of shows like what what society, you know, the where kind of the social fears lied, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. Norman Bates is a character, you know, the everyman, and and that's where Bates Motel really kind of brings brings the best of that character up, right? Um, so you know, he's the everyman, good boy. Uh, in the time where Leave It to Beaver is on TV and, you know, I Love Lucy, things like that, and he's obsessed with his mother to right. a degree that is uncomfortable even today, by today's standards, murderous, sexualized, you know, like, there is the whole, uh, even even the fact that they put a toilet on, on screen like, <laughs> was risque at the time. Right. So I think it kind of, that defines a fair amount of the fear of the time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, breaking the the barrier of the sexualization of your own mother, like the whole Freudian yeah. aspect, that is not something that was spoken about, right? As well as the, you know, the murder and the blood, right? And uh, <laughs> we have sort of, you know, at least the implication of nudity right. in a, in a sort of a mainstream film was pretty pretty bold, even right. though you know, a woman in her bra in the first yeah. five minutes, yeah. To, yeah, and you know, at a hotel right. in a sort of illicit situation. Um, yeah, those were all sort of bold things we didn't talk about. Uh, I was just listening to, I was mentioning the Inside Psycho podcast that came out recently um, that I do recommend checking out. Uh, but I was listening through the first couple episodes, and I haven't really planned this, but Ed Gein, who Psycho is sort of based on, was from Wisconsin. We're recording from Plain- Madison, Wisconsin yeah. here. He's yeah, from Plainfield, Plain Plain And uh, last episode, we were talking to Ben um, about Slender Man and the two uh, two young girls that murdered their friend were also from Wisconsin. So we kind of have this dark side apparently <laughs> to Wisconsin. But uh, uh, anyways, on the podcast Inside Psycho, uh, he was describing how when they finally caught Ed Gein after he'd murdered multiple women and they figured out what was going on. I think technically he only murdered one or two people. Oh, really? He was a grave robber. Oh, grave robber. My brother would be... Oh, pre- this is there you go. my brother's time to shine now. Yeah. Um, if he He's got here. the details, yeah. I think he only murdered two people one, upon being caught from his crimes. Yeah. Um, the actual murders. He murdered them in an attempt to cover up his crimes. Mm. Um, and that's how he got caught. Hmm. But I think primarily he was a grave robber. I think they did mention that, but I guess they didn't say how many people he'd actually murdered. Yeah. So that makes sense. Uh, but they were saying even when they it's announced a- it in the newspapers and things, they didn't really describe in very much detail how sort of weird mm-hmm. and uh, twisted um, he was and, and how, which is, you know, not portrayed in Psycho, the sort of things that he does yeah. um, and that connection. But yeah. I was uh, reading over briefly some some history of, of the filmmaking of the making of Psycho, mm-hmm. um, originally, so there was a script written based on the story of Edgine that Alfred Hitchcock got the wanted the rights to. Right. Um, Paramount didn't want to make it, and in any way, mm-hmm. they tried to. I mean, push it off Hitchcock as much as he could, as much yeah. as they could, um, to the point where he put up his own his own money to make the film. Really, that's I, I think where a lot of the uh, creativity and the marketing and whatnot mm. 
came from was like him because he put his own money on the line. Yeah. And it made him like a millionaire. He he got a, 40, a 60% stake in the final. Wow. Final. Um, That's the way to do it. Yeah. yeah. And the, of like the negative or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, made himself a millionaire out of the process because they did not want anything to do with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely based off of a pretty dark character, but I, I don't know that from what I'm understanding in the podcast and what I've heard previously, you know, when it filtered down to the film script, a lot of that was, yeah. you know, filtered out. Turned that, into taxidermy yeah. instead of, like, human taxidermy. <laughs> human, human taxidermy, which I guess we see more of in, um, like, The Silence of the Lambs and stuff. <laughs> the graphicness Spoiler of Spoiler alert, the last two minutes of Psycho. Yeah. I, uh, this is a good time to mention in general, which I need to do at the top of the show more. We are not avoiding spoilers no. in this uh, at all. The movie's 55 years old, 57 years right. old. Right, and we will be talking about uh, Bates Motel, um, which we will be spoiling up to you know where we are, and as well any other films I think are open game because I think part of these types of films when you're talking about double identities or split personalities, it's all about kind of the twist mm-hmm. um, and finding out that there's these different identities vying for attention or doing the different um, dark deeds that they're doing. So I think. We can't really avoid not revealing those things. So, um, so spoilers throughout this episode, but most of them are not new, new films. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, so let's get back to kind of talking about Psycho and and Bates Motel between the two. Um, and I think you're right in talking about kind of this this controversial topics um, in Psycho for that time were quite shocking. In, in what he was doing. Uh, and I think, you know, yeah, we didn't really talk about how people might have schizophrenia or um, these different identities or fixations mm-hmm. on, like, you know, their mother or something like that that they dress up and, and do these things. So I think that's interesting way of portraying it. And I think that becomes a model in future films throughout kind of cinematic history of using this sort of mental disorder to kind of go to or explain these kind of dark mm-hmm. places or explain sort of twists in the story yeah. that we have. I mean, in addition to the the psycho, like, quote, unquote, psychopathic slasher horror, mm-hmm. you know, with the butcher knife, mm-hmm. um, shower scenes, et cetera, et cetera. It goes, yeah. I mean, it's been done after that thoroughly. Right. The, uh, the... You know, shower kind of killing becomes kind of a trope, I think, in, right. in certain films, or even like a bathtub mm-hmm. of what you're talking about. So in kind of comparing that to uh, Bates Motel a little bit, which is an update of, uh, of that kind of story, but it's told in a sort of different way. Uh, one of the showrunners and creators of that is Carlton Cuse, who was a big part of uh, Lost. Um that TV show. So he's, he's a big part of this show. And I think I was a little surprised when I first started watching it because I didn't necessarily think it was going to be that great. It kind of sounded like a crazy idea or a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Hollow then, grounds. Yeah. 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 And I think we had already kind of been burned as, as an audience with the Gus Van Sant sort of shot for shot, um, remake. Yeah. Uh, kind of redo of of the original psycho which i think we could view as more of like an experiment um 
I right. would say. Have you right. seen that I did. before? Yeah. yeah. What'd you think of that version? Um, I mean, I was relatively young when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, that was probably... I think I had seen Psycho previous to that. I watched a lot of uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents mm-hmm. before yeah. that when I was a young person. But, uh, I mean, it's just, it, at the time, for me, it was just another way to see if... A new, a new and experimental kind of idea, mm-hmm. a, a way to see the film, but... Um, Something like that today. That was before the days of reboots and right. you know remakes. Right. Every every time you turn around, and I think that one's unique because it is precisely right. trying shot to be shot. shot for shot. Yeah. Besides a few additions and changes, yeah. small changes, but trying to recreate that. So I think why we can call it more of an experiment. Yeah, and I think it was unique seeing you know the this update of these characters that we knew so well portrayed by modern actors yeah. i thought vince Vaughn did really well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i mean yeah everybody else yeah julie moore uh william h macy mm-hmm. as Aber- abergast yeah was good yeah yeah i think it, it was also a unique take of seeing color the sort of modern technology of it but applied in hitchcock's style mm-hmm. um i think was was really cool uh, to be able to see how that worked. I mean, it, it definitely shows you what kind of a master of the craft he was and also just how film storytelling has changed. And I think maybe sometimes for the worse mm-hmm. um, and, and how things are, how carefully it was done um, in those days. Yeah. And sometimes that black and white is the way to go. Yeah. Was I mean, That's some true. of those shots looked better. Yeah. You know, for sure. Uh, what did you think about... I mean, I think they did try to make it a little more tantalizing than the original um, that they could update. Of course, there's kind of the famous, like, peephole um, where, you know, Norman Bates kind of acts out his yeah. view of things a little bit more um, in that scene, um, which, you know, maybe I think they kind of spun as this is what Hitchcock would have done if he could Right, have. if he was allowed to. Yeah, if he was allowed to, or at least that's what he was implying. Right. Um, or even that what the audience is interpreted at the time, even mm-hmm. in the subtle, yeah. it's much more subtle, yeah. subtle to us, not to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's that's an interesting change where we can see the difference in how things are portrayed, and it it, it does kind of show how iconic it is. I mean, Vince Vaughn's performance, like you said, is pretty good, but he's definitely playing off of um, the original uh, the original portrayal um, by what's his name. Anthony Perkins. Anthony Perkins, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, he, he kind of does the laugh yeah. and kind of the nervousness. Yeah, so I think, kind of a meek young guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think Anthony Perkins gets a lot of flack for kind of being typecast into that, but I think he was doing something really interesting with that original, yeah. original role. Mm-hmm. So getting back to Bates Motel. Bates Motel. I think yeah. um, speaking of the Norman Bates character, mm-hmm. uh, Freddie Highmore... Mm-hmm. The young Norman Bates, I feel, is like perfect for that role. Yeah, um, he's done like a solid part of being, not not like an evil evil character, but you can mm-hmm. tell where you know a lot of the motivation is from the character comes from, and even when like you, if you watch the show, the whole blackout scenarios and when he turns when he plays Norma mm-hmm. as himself, yeah, um, like well blacked out. Uh-huh. fantastic right like it as is. an actor he does he picks really up great, all yeah. of her mannerisms uh-huh. um 
and I think I mean he couldn't have couldn't have made a better choice. Yeah, it'll be hard to see where he goes as an actor from there. You know? I've been thinking that too recently. <laughs> like I don't know what kind of career he's gonna have right. after that. Um, not just because he's typecast, but I don't know. I mean, he still does seem like very young. Yeah. Type of kind of like the Elijah Wood syndrome. Yeah, <laughs> like he'll be, he always he'll be seems stuck there. playing a teenager for the right. next fifteen years. Yeah, but I think I was also a little um, nervous about how he would do as well when I kind of heard about his casting and saw it. But I agree, he is. I think he's really excellent yeah. and balances that sort of innocence with sort of the crazy when he goes off the deep end mm-hmm. um, and that flip between the two. And I think he handles it really well. And I think he's gotten more interesting as the show goes on yeah. and playing that role. Um, so, I mean, what, what kind of things do you think you point out, uh, can point out between Psycho and Bates Motel and the different ways that they kind of tell that story? Um, the whole, or, I mean, the whole origin story view of it is, uh, is, uh, I mean, obviously the huge contrast, um, mm-hmm. the fact that you know why, where, you kind of get to see and know where the the inner rage and, um, the anger and, mm-hmm. you know, the murderous side of things kind of grew from, and you, you know, Norman Bates is more, more of a, per, on a personal level yeah. than just like a creepy taxidermist hotel keeper. Right. Um, so you kind of sympathize in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think maybe that's the change in some of our culture too, is, you know, we couldn't quite talk about exactly what was happening in psycho. You know, it's kind of just revealed at the end about his mother and stuff. And we don't get much psychoanalysis or anything <laughs> therapy about it. And in the new version, we're kind of tracking that whole process. You know, it's certainly portrayed in an entertaining way, but we get to see that motivation of his mother. And I think in Bates Motel, like, it, Freddie Highmore is great, but the balance of him with um, his mom, Norma, played by Vera Formiga, um, I think really her role in acting is really important in that yeah. show. Um, to make that relationship work right between the two and she's almost the main character i would say yeah really at least half the time yeah the whole it's kind of like a nature versus nurture mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um especially from like the car the current cultural side where we especially the the past few years understand mental illness a lot better and sympathize with mental illness a lot better mm-hmm. than in the 60s when there probably wasn't even a name for schizophrenia. Like it, I don't, right. I, like, I don't know when it was, obviously, yeah, I don't know for sure, but yeah, I don't think that we're, it's very thoroughly diagnosed at the, those times. Bipolar mm-hmm. disorder didn't exist. And yeah, you know, it wasn't in the like mainstream vocabulary, right. of What people talked about. Yeah. Um, so at the time you're crazy, you know, you get picked up by the, the guys in the white coats or right. whatever. Yeah. The whole, um, whereas now we kind of understand where people come from and that it's d- developed and, mm-hmm. um, people are ill and, or can be, you know, yeah, treated and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like the, the way they develop their relationship and I like the added element in Bates Motel of, I think Norma isn't, you know, 
I wouldn't say she is split personality or has schizophrenia like Norman does, but I think you can definitely see this sort of two identities sometimes popping out with her, where they kind of portray and kind of do this throwback where she dresses kind of like 50s style, like perfect mother type, um, and kind of that throwback. And And when she presents herself to new people running the hotel and stuff, she's a very like... Oh, loving, nurturing mother yeah. who who just loves her son so much. Um, but then we see her sort of like flip sometimes and she kind of like, I think even like in the way she portrays it, she drops her voice and gives this kind of flat, yeah. um, uh, kind of delivers her lines in this very flat tone uh, that really like pierces down <laughs> to like the characters and they kind of like, oh, she's serious now. Yeah. And like she does, of course... Um, kill in certain cases we see um when she has to or or carries out these certain things um supposedly to protect her son so Mm -hmm. i like that that connection between it's not just norman but we also see where he might have learned that right that double uh identity having to form in order to kind of cover things up Mm -hmm. or protect protect certain people that you care about and things like that right the idea her whole idea of lying to cover up and lying to Mm -hmm you know, protect her son Mm -hmm. digging, like constantly digging the hole deeper. Right. In order to try to get out. Like that got to me after a few seasons got Mm -hmm. a little bit old. Mm -hmm. Like she was constantly just making the, the situation worse by lying for no reason. Right. Um, but it also reflects on her character that there's like a serious disorder with herself, with her Mm -hmm. own character that she can't tell the truth for some reason or another. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, she she seems like she wants this sort of perfect life and perfect home um, for her family, but at other times will sort of be fiercely independent and, you know, kind of take things in her own hands mm-hmm. to kind of in this sort of selfish way. And so I think that we see that kind of battle within her that then carries over to, to her son. And in the latest, I'm only on the fourth season. Um, I think you finished that season. Mm-hmm. But we really see that she's still trying to really struggling now to maintain things and keep up appearances, and she she can't really keep that going yeah. <laughs> as much as uh, she wants to. So the she's kind of going a little bit crazy, um, and we see Norman kind of turning, and even though we we know he is totally crazy. Uh, that he thinks that he needs to protect her because she's having the mental problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it is kind of revealing that he can almost see that, even though we know he has um, serious mental issues himself. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, itself, the whole season is a great segue to Psycho Mm -hmm. in that way. Like, it rolls right into it. Yeah. I'm excited to see what happens, uh, how they kind of close it out and come full circle to Mm -hmm. the original original story how to do that i was also thinking just sort of uh in the way that they they kind of show that um i think double identities and sort of split personalities are often used as a sort of narrative device to kind of trick or provide some sort of twist to the audience so these kind of characters are the kind of ultimate unreliable narrator since we often can't trust the events shown 
from, you know, a specific perspective or viewpoint that we're seeing it from. Um, so I was looking at Psycho again, and I like how the actual structure of the film kind of has like two identities to it. So we get Marion Crane's story and we're following her perspective really mm. closely. We see it and like I just think the way he he shot the film, you know, when she's driving in the car and kind of getting sleepy and stuff, the music, I think it's all kind of her emotions and things mm. like that. And we stick with her, follow her the whole it's time. It's pretty much like a montage the first mm-hmm. 10 minutes, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and when we get to the hotel, you know, she is our protagonist. She's the one we're following. Um, I think until we get to that midpoint where she gets murdered and then the film sort of shifts perspectives to Norman. And so I think it's unique that I hadn't thought of that before. I mean, I knew the, you know, there was the twist of, and, mm-hmm. and switching characters, but I didn't really think about that as like the film has kind of two identities of itself. Mm-hmm. Like you think you're watching one kind of film from this, uh, um, from this character that we can relate to, even though she's doing yeah. something kind of bad, you know, she feels bad about it and kind of tra- tries to make amends a little bit. Um, and then we totally switch to, by the end, we are in the point of view of like a killer, like a murderer, um, who is, who is mentally unstable. So I think I really like that, um, that trick that, that Hitchcock was pulling mm-hmm. off. And I think films since then have really kind of tried to <laughs> maybe do that in other ways um but haven't done it in in quite the way that hitchcock could could pull off that twist mm-hmm. um so i was thinking in general though that this is used as a story device um we were kind of thinking through examples and films that i i maybe don't think of quite as as highly but something like uh, secret window with johnny depp where we get this reversal in character um, and I didn't really go along with that one too much, but that we think there's this uh, guy kind of threatening him throughout the film and stuff, and we think, you know, maybe he's kind of going crazy or something weird is happening to him, but really it's just himself. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't work quite as well for me, but it's still used as kind of a horror thriller kind of trope. Yeah. Um, Was that to Stephen, tell that story? Stephen King story? I feel like it's Stephen King. Yeah. I think so. Somebody I can't um, really remember. Yeah, kind of more. Johnny Depp in his long hair face. Right, right, yep. Yeah, trying to make a little more popular movies um, in that phase. Uh, and then Identity um, with John Cusack, where we see all these different uh, identities forming um, in his mind and kind of battling it out for attention. So mm-hmm. I think that those kind of films are completely structured around having those different identities kind of show up in how the film is is portrayed uh, between them. So I think it's often used as this narrative tool to kind of bring a twist, and I think we're kind of hitting the phase where that might be kind of cliched, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a little... I mean, it's been predictable in something like... I mean, I don't really recall when I I saw it, but when Identity... I mean, it's in the name of the film. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas something, if something like that would come out now, like I think everyone would call the call the end, call you know, before it, yeah. before it got there. Mm-hmm. A couple, I mean, a couple other notable movies, uh, Fight Club and mm-hmm. or Primal Fear, both with Edward Norton that you pointed out earlier. Yeah, uh, 
It's making a career out of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Primal Fear, we'll do it uh, in order of release. Mm-hmm. Uh, that caught me off guard. Guard. Yeah. I think I think that the the story, the the narrative structure of the film, mm-hmm. and the whole subplot with like the sex tape and the priests and like mm-hmm. is enough story of itself mm-hmm. to kind of set aside the the dual identity mm-hmm. twist. Yeah. Um, so it, I mean, it worked as a twist ending in that film, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't rely the whole plot of the film didn't rely on this one character's perspective, right? Which made it a bit easier to swallow. Yeah. Um, Fight Club, same thing. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, it it adds layers to like a second viewing. Yeah. Which is always, I mean, it's always better to. To be able to go back and watch a film a second time with a new perspective than just mm-hmm. having a twist ending ruin, you know, make it unwatchable or right. ruin the, you know, any point of rewatching it. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of other, again, another a lot of other plot points to the film that make it a valuable story and not mm-hmm. just surprise it's been John Cusack the whole time. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, I think those... Um... Yeah, I mean, I think those are good examples. And those are a little bit different somewhat than maybe Psycho, where Primal Fear, uh, from what I remember, it's it's a very knowing switch between those identities. Like, it's not treated as... I mean, I think they they approach it, you know, in the narrative and in the court case oh, that's as, right. like, this is a mental yeah. issue, but, like, the reveal is he knows what he's doing. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. I was... This is... This is uh, a plan of his, you know, yeah. to be able to do it. He, like, faked insanity and then, mm-hmm. yeah, boom, he was the crazy, angry side the whole time. Right, right. So it's kind of this, again, this idea of something hidden inside of us that um, that kind of gets released. And I think we could go back to something like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and talk about how that does point to something inside of us that we're like afraid of um it's gonna get loose and Mm -hmm. it's gonna be wild and the side of us that is uncontrollable um that's that gets out and and maybe that should be free a little bit or like we're too tight-lipped about that Mm -hmm. because i think dr jekyll and mr hyde doesn't always say like you know this is the bad side or the good side in some ways it is kind of portrayed as monstrous yeah but uh that it is also himself right you know so conscious yeah as a culture what is you know what are we actually afraid of mm-hmm. there's probably half of us that are afraid of because we know that there's something actually inside of you that is dangerous and evil mm-hmm. and whatnot right and then the other half is afraid of the that there might be or there mm-hmm. you know who you know yeah yeah i mean i i start to think of too i think in more modern times when we see uh maybe like with technology we have sort of like online and offline identities um between who we kind of are online and Mm -hmm. offline or we can be somebody else you know sort of anonymously online and act much differently or even we talk about sort of uh bullying over like texting Mm -hmm. or chat rooms or something like that with kids you know you're kind of allowed you have this medium separating you that you can be somebody else um and i think that again it kind of reveals 
kind of what's inside of us right when you separate that yeah. sometimes people want to, the dual personality mm-hmm yeah and they can they can kind of use that as an excuse which kind of like primal fear he was kind of at first using that as an excuse mm-hmm. of like hey you know this wasn't really me <laughs> even though it was me um something inside uh that was sort of wrong with him but it's not his fault you know And I think Fight Club is also very unique. Now that it's getting a little bit older, um, I think that was very, like, around 2000, I want to say. 1999. 99, yeah. So the end of the 90s, and we were discussing earlier how I think the film was taken in the wrong way initially by a lot of people, um, where they saw Brad Pitt who was kind of this hunky this star at the time. Shirt yeah, off. yeah. <laughs> and the previews, you know, him hitting people and fighting yep. and these kind of battles. So people thought it was going to be maybe a thriller, but kind of like... The poster had a pink bar of soap, which gave no context whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of see uh, these guys fighting and stuff in these, in these clubs. So, and that's really not... And that was kind of a small part of the film, really. Mm-hmm. Kind of an incidental almost. Um of, of the overall story and was about these much more uh, subversive ideas to what that was talking about and what you were kind of saying about kind of like bro culture. Right. It was, get... it was embraced by the bro culture because they got to fight with their shirts off. Right. But it was like the idea, what it was actually trying to, to, um, trying to show as a, mm-hmm. as a story, you know, anti-consumerism the idea of of purity and the you know like the traditional gladiator part yeah. where the purity in the ring no shirt no shoes mm-hmm. um but also like the honor of you know brotherhood or whatever you yeah fight and you, you somebody gives up and that's it you like mm-hmm. um which is the opposite of you know the frat boy culture yeah. pretty much yeah uh, yeah as well as the idea of you know, destruction and self-destruction and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of themes. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot going on in the film that was way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does kind of go headlong into talking about, uh, sort of like being in therapy and psychoanalysis when, you know, you get this dream of being in the cave with the, the pain spirit, <laughs> yeah, spirit animals and stuff. So like it is clearly in that realm of, talking about um psychological stuff and mental disorders and people kind of having these issues um and maybe not dealing with them the best way Mm -hmm. or embracing them um to kind of break you out of this uh um this mold of what what we expect is the american dream the the monotony of the american dream Mm -hmm. um i mean i know that i read the book a long time ago yeah um and a lot of the themes in that were, uh, like the, what is it called, the the group therapy sessions, uh-huh. where Cornelius or the the title character uh-huh. Tyler Durden was, Tyler, yeah. um, kind of I mean pretty much addicted to different therapy groups, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, and that was a bigger theme in the book, mm. where he would pretty much find solace in. Right. Getting to speak with people and pretty much anonymously, you'd mm-hmm. he'd be a different person each time, with a different disorder each time, and meet, and go from group to group. Right. Every night of the week, or you know, and, and find comfort in other people's 
pain and obscurity and, mm-hmm. um, I mean, not so much self-destruction because mm-hmm. it would be like a cancer support group. Right. But the idea that like the nihilism side mm-hmm. of it where like every, everybody in the room is dying. Right. Um, so let's all just be together kind of thing. Like it yeah. was a, there's weird, there's a lot of bizarre themes that mm-hmm. make more sense coming from a, an author yeah. than myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's so much going on in that film and, uh, I give it a lot of credit for, for being ahead of the game. I mean, if we think about, uh, the twist in that at the end where we realize, you know, they are the same person, um, kind of intertwined and mm-hmm. he doesn't really know what's happening, you know, <laughs> on the one side of his personality with the other, or that's kind of battling it out inside of him. I think that's just sort of a more physical, um, tangible way of describing like what the way we want to be in society mm-hmm. that we kind of like the confident mm-hmm. dominant alpha male right versus the, uh, the business suit. Right. Lackey kind of subdued. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, domesticated kind of version of yourself mm-hmm. that you just kind of go along and get the good job, but you're not happy and, and just move through through your life. So I think that, that really brought that out. And I like how even there were these little elements of subversion in the way the film was made where you kind of pointed out the splicing, you know, when he worked in the movie theater. Yeah, um, putting the big old dicks. yeah. Yeah, into into the film, and then we see that happen. But then we also see the clues of of that personality um, in the film itself. Mm-hmm. When Brad Pitt kind of flashed for a frame um, in the sequence that you, a lot of people didn't catch initially. I can't, I can't believe people didn't catch that. Right, I know. Yeah, when you had to explain it to them. Right. Yeah, like it flashes on the clear. screen. It's not like one half a frame. It's like a <laughs> solid. Half of a second that he's right, standing right. in the office, you know. Yeah, a few times. But I like, again, that that's using the, the film form to yeah. to show what's happening um, and kind of subvert our expectations of, of how things are supposed to work. It's surprising that David Fincher could put together like a legible film. Not legible. Like a... Yeah, that came together. That came, that it came much, together yeah. as a story mm-hmm. with so many goofy backwards aspects mm-hmm. uh i remember seeing it for the i mean i watched it for the very first time expecting when i was like a, i was probably 13 right expecting like cool action movie with brad pitt with his shirt off yeah and i was like what they're the same guy like that, that's <laughs> dumb <laughs> say, yeah. but then I, I mean i rewatched it obviously since then several times and it's i mean it's made a much bigger better impact but yeah yeah i think it does take a few viewings because yeah, that ending kind of throws you yeah. off um, and it, and like you said, I think that nihilistic view is a good way to describe it. Cause at the end they're just sort of like, let's sit here and watch things yeah. burn, you know, like let's just take it down. Um, even though you, you kind of are surviving ba- barely, you know, yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I, I like that. Uh, I think it was sort of portraying something bubbling up in our, in our culture and society at the time that really touch, took much longer to kind of come about. Um, I think when we get to something like uh, American Beauty soon after that, I think that was, you know, not in such a visceral way. I think I'm American sure. Beauty was the same year. Was it the same year? 
99. You might be right. Yeah, you might be right. Um, but I think that was much more embraced for right. essentially kind of talking about some of the same ideas yeah. of kind of breaking out of that suburban sort of um, American dream lifestyle mm-hmm. that we're talking about. So, uh, so yeah, I think it, it was leading to something, but people didn't know what to make of it at the time, sort mm-hmm. of. So yeah, cool. Uh, kind of talking through that, and I just kind of was wondering, like, I think this trope is used in thrillers and horror films a lot, this sort of dissociative identity disorder, and like we talked about, it kind of taps into some of our fears of the subconscious or something inside of us that's darker. Um, and I think that in sort of... Um, Talking about mental disorders, this is pretty inaccurate of sort of split personalities and things. They don't often uh, result in sort of violence or extreme behavior in the way that we see in films and TV. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts on, like, why film and TV are so fascinated with this uh, condition um, in the way that they portray it continuously as this, like, darkness or this... uh, you know, violent behavior that's yeah. going to come out. I mean, I feel like one, it's an ob- it's obvi- obvious, like kind of easy way out of mm-hmm. explaining any motivation of a character or mm-hmm. murderous, you know. Mm-hmm. And two, that it, uh, I mean, it's still kind of mysterious mm-hmm. um, and spontaneous. Yeah, uh, people whack out and murder their family like mm-hmm. way more often than they probably should. <laughs> uh, um, so like it's still, still easily, uh, it's a, it's a method of throwing things out there that are still easily, you can leave it unexplained. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a way for us to kind of have some kind of answer. Uh, oh, you did it cause he was crazy. Right, right. Um, and and I think it does kind of turn, you know, mental illness into this kind of monstrous thing, which yeah. I think could be dangerous in some cases in the way we treat it, um, when it's just kind of used in this as this mechanism. I mean, what I kind of like about Bates Motel is that, I mean, I think it has a history, and even just like the, the tone of the music, and when you first start watching the show, you know it's going to be dark. Mm-hmm. And it's going to lead to something bad <laughs> in these different situations. But you're like, never really afraid of Norman. Right. You're never yeah, really yeah. afraid of any... I mean, even though he is inherently... I mean, according to the show, inherently evil because he is blacks out and murderous young man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're never really rooting against him. Yeah. Even though he's killed, like, several people. And <laughs> right. his mother has killed several people. Yeah. You always want her to kind of, kind of get away with it because... Mm-hmm. When it comes down to it, her intentions are kind of good. Yeah. Uh, from her and as the viewer, our perspectives. Mm-hmm. But not, I mean. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think like with something bait with like Bates Motel, we see how it kind of complicates identity and the motivations because a lot of times we don't see the killing or the murders at least initially sometimes we go back in flashbacks what i think is used in a lot of forms mm-hmm. to kind of see go back and see what actually happened or how the different personality was in charge during those times but i think it leaves that mystery of like 
did he actually do it? Or, you know, like, yeah. did something else happen? Because he blacked out, right. so... We probably wouldn't appreciate, yeah. wouldn't be on his side as such as much, so as much if we yeah. saw him brutally murder a teacher in the first season or right. whatever, you know. Right. Um, maybe. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it did show it, and mm-hmm. maybe if we knew the whole time that he blacked out, straight up blacked out, yeah. and murdered people, mm-hmm. it would add a quite different dynamic as mm-hmm. a viewer. Yeah. Maybe we'd still be on his side, but... I mean, mm-hmm. get a little feel a little guilty about it, but right. you know, it'd be interesting to mm-hmm. to explore that side. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I I like how the serialized version of it over seasons we get to kind of see just like this really slow burn of things because of the way, like you said, with the teacher in the first season, we come to the second season and like, well, we're a little on the fence for a little yeah. while. About, or at least, you know, the characters in the film all, like, think, you know, well, maybe he didn't do it, or this didn't happen. Um, and each time we kind of see that that progression, or Norma kind of trying to hide it, at least from everybody. Um, so it is this, like, super slow burn, or this transformation that we see mm-hmm. in this character um, to full-blown. So that's that. I think that's some of the, you know, the enjoyment out of the show is seeing him get to the Norman Bates that we saw in Psycho. Yeah. Um, of how he gets fully transformed into that. Right. And even the identity of, like, the literal, where he turns, like, in his mind, he turns into his mother. Mm-hmm. Or from our perspective, he is his mother. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, as the Bates Motel seasons, he murders, I mean... I can't recall one or two people <laughs> yeah, in the first season. Yeah. Well blacked out. Yeah. Um, but she also does. So, it, I mean, they kind of switch roles in that, those mm-hmm. identities as well, where he mm-hmm. literally takes over her role yeah. as the killer. Right. And I, and I do think there is a progression too from, if we're kind of comparing, you know, the difference in our culture now uh, from Psycho, where we talked about things had to be sort of, suppressed and not quite talked about or shown and now the new one we get you know like uh at least like attempted rape in the first couple episodes Mm -hmm. and um a lot of talk about sort of sexual identity and him you know we don't know what happens with that teacher and this teenager Mm -hmm. um and things like that that you know wouldn't would have been not allowed to be talked about in when psycho came out you know um to be able to show so we do see culture kind of changing in that way and i think the the killing the amount of killing <laughs> increases certainly to keep audiences sort of right. happy these days that you have to lead to that um so i think that's that's interesting as well between the two so uh yeah i mean i think we've we've kind of talked through a lot of of some of the differences between those different seasons. I'm overall a pretty big fan of, of Bates Motel. I think it, it won me over quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there certainly are those points, I think, in the seasons where we get, you know, storylines with the brother and the drug running. Yeah, you and, mentioned this, uh, the serialized storytelling yeah. where it's, this week it's, you know, right, this guy, this goofy character rolls in and mm-hmm. then there's a drug war, or drug, you know, like... yeah. It gets a little goofy, mm-hmm. especially uh, like post two thousand fifteen or whatever yeah. year that marijuana was legalized. Right, right. Yeah. So they're like a little skittish of like, uh, 
you you know using the real life real world scenario of, mm-hmm. in their fictional town right right yeah and i and i originally was thinking with this with bates motel how uh we also see a lot of like corruption and deviant things happening in town um like human trafficking and sex yeah. slaves being hidden in this small town and stuff which you know kind of shows this overall people are not who they seem Mm -hmm. and kind of the sheriff has kind of these two identities that he's kind of trying to hide to and uh and and i mean i think that goes back to like something like twin peaks it kind of reminds me because of the setting maybe too but just like you don't know how much of you know what's going on under the surface of these small towns um of what people are doing but i think it kind of broadens that scope um I don't know if that's to kind of like maybe diminish some of what Norman does, you know, that saying mm-hmm. like, well, all these other people are, you know, like small town gangsters and like, you know, drug runners and, yeah. and things, but he just killed a couple people. Right. Right. He just killed a couple teachers. <laughs> teachers yeah. Um, give him a pass. Yeah. But I, I mean, I guess we also see that in psycho where Marion Crane is also doing something very, kind of deviant or bad mm-hmm. um stealing this money and there are repercussions for that i guess too but you know it's, she's she's not totally innocent in this situation um but she kind of runs into somebody that's a lot worse off yeah <laughs> that that's interesting i'm glad that bates motel did not continue to go into the grand scheme storylines mm-hmm. with the human trafficking and the, yeah it I mean, I could foresee that going way off the way rails over. quick, yeah, mm-hmm. but yep. it didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and I like the slow build of you kind of always, like, know when, you know, some people are getting close to each other, and, like, either, like, Norma or Norman's always going to react to that, mm-hmm. and you, you get, again, that kind of slow burn to to uh, knowing something bad's going to happen to them. Yeah. Um, so, so that's interesting, too. Um, yeah, anything else, um, you wanted to mention about these films? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I think we got... got Covered it pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to our other segments and, um, what we've been watching with our kids and, uh, what we're calling, I guess now, now playing what we've been watching lately, what's been playing on our, uh, on our screens. Um, just for me, like haven't had a lot of time to actually watch stuff with my kids recently together. They've been watching stuff, um, but not always with me. I think one of them was, uh, we've slowly been going through the Harry Potter films. I think maybe we talked about Mm -hmm. some of these before, but we got to the fourth, um, or no, the third, uh, the prisoner of Azkaban. And, uh, I think is one of my favorite really. Um, Gary Oldman's great. Gary Oldman's great, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, and I think that was the first time. Like the first two are very like uh, close to the books, you know. They mm-hmm. try to follow the story very closely and strictly, um, and loyal to that. But I think with the third one, they gave a little more freedom to to kind of make it more cinematic to mm-hmm. tell the story. Um, and not have to have every little detail, but yeah. just have it everything be a good is so film. whimsical and yeah, kind of not mm-hmm. overproduced, but like you can tell that it's crammed in there. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it's so fast paced, but there's so much, and like so there's much going on, so yeah. many things in each scene, little details. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that let the director and um, and craftsmen, craftspeople on the on the film kind of go crazy a little bit and and try things, bring new things to it that are cinematic compared mm-hmm. to what you have in the book, um, which is really fun. And we get sort of like time travel and stuff portrayed in this unique way, kind of fun way. Um, I wish he kind of would have done more films, Thayla let him. I think Alfonso Cuaron wanted to do more, um, but they went with different directors. So, um, But yeah, I, that's one of my favorite out of the uh, the Harry Potter films, so it was fun to watch with, uh, with the kiddos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we got to all, through all of them. Okay. I know that I've fallen asleep at, at least at some point during each film. <laughs> They're long. Yeah. yeah. They're very long. They're yeah. long. Yeah. Um, I didn't read the books, mm-hmm. so I was not super engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd always wake up, you know, at the three quarters mark and give jump right back into excited. it. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I haven't read the books either, so there are definitely points even where I think I've seen most of them at least a couple times. Um, maybe not the very last one. I think I've only seen once, but. Uh, but yeah, there's certain points where I'm still like, I'm not sure exactly what's happening yeah. with this I, but like, stop and pause uh-huh. with my daughter <laughs> yeah. and wife and say, okay, who's that? Yeah. Why do I care about him? <laughs> and they'd be like, okay, well, here's the thing that they don't show in the movies. And then, <laughs> then they give me like all these important all details the and all this backstory of why this character actually matters. Mm-hmm. And it makes a bit, a fair, a good amount of difference. Like I Get up to speed pretty quick. Yeah, the background on it. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of what we're watching. Um, should we go into the now playing section? Now playing. Yeah. Um, most recently, I've been watching a fair amount of Mad Men reruns. Oh, nice. Um, I watch a lot of TV when I fall asleep, so I <laughs> throw on Mad Men, which I've seen. Uh, I mean, I've watched the whole series watch the whole thus thing. far. Yeah. No, I'm not in a long time, mm-hmm. but I. I think, I mean, I turn it on, fall asleep, and then hit play again the next yeah. night or so, mm-hmm. uh, and miss a bunch of episodes, but it's okay, because I've seen them all. Yeah. Um, and it's been, I mean, it's still good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it the first time around. Mm-hmm. Still good this time around. Yeah. Um, it starts to slow down a bit around, I'm on season five, towards the end of season five now. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it stays good, the whole series. Highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything else like that much. Like, it has its own sort of tone and, yeah. and feel. And I'm always surprised how, like, there's not much um, soundtrack to it mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, like, I always just feel, like, so engaged in in the show and, like, pulling me through it. Yeah. Just, like, sucks you in. Um, they, like, it, they do really well also inject a lot of 60s, like, current or, like, cultural uh, events. Yeah, yeah. Um. They they stand out I think on intentionally which mm. is fine but yeah um, I mean they they kind of also engage they encapsulate the sixties mm-hmm. well yeah and I and I don't know always quite how to describe this but like there's like a mystery to the show not like in like you know detective solving this mystery but just like with um, Don Draper and stuff like I just think his character. It you know just has something that you don't quite can't quite grasp yeah. you know like what's going on in his mind or yeah. like um, you want him to li- you want him to like you the whole time you watch it <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> you do yeah um, and you also want him to stop being a jerk to people yeah or like yeah but like also 
he's interesting to watch and yeah. you know he's going to screw things up sort mm-hmm. of but um yeah and i think i always liked how like his backstory was just kind of like got weirder as the show went on yeah um but they never really like exactly explain it but um in fact actually that's pretty good uh connection to the double, double identities yeah. yeah that he tried to took on this whole other persona yeah um and was always trying to get away from that other this history and whatnot yeah i think the episode i watched recently he it was like a fever he was having like a fever dream uh-huh. or like a fever mid day yeah and he saw his dead brother and shit uh-huh. like in the middle you know yeah. like in, it's haunts haunt him through the whole stuff, series yeah. um i mean literally up until the last few episodes where he's still struggling to try to change from who he you mm-hmm. know who he was and was, yeah. who he was trying to hide and whatnot uh-huh. uh to the point that i think that's kind of the theme of his character throughout the whole series too the and there's a lot of there was some with the last episode uh mm-hmm. you know what how did it end or what does that ending mean right um and i know to me it kind of just showed that he didn't change much <laughs> yeah he didn't change really didn't at all really change yeah and that's yeah. i mean and that's who he's his character was the whole time why mm-hmm. would you expect what 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 else would you expect out of the last episode right you know? yeah yeah i mean i don't think that show is about like him the standard arc of a character right like learning something about themselves yeah, no. and then changing yeah he learned um, probably plenty but didn't <laughs> didn't change didn't actually take hold in anything yeah yeah, I, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot more we could say about that show, but yeah, I always, I think about going back and revisiting too. Um, anything else you've been watching? Um, so started watching the last season of Bates Motel. Uh-huh. We talked about that, I think. Yeah. I think we touched on that. Marion Crane's going to show up at some point. Um, Sneaky Pete. Uh, we finished the first season on Amazon Prime, which yeah. is pretty solid. Let's go. A bit more um, serialized, kind of episodic, uh, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premise is that he, uh, G- Giovanni Ribisi, plays um, like a con artist who falls in f- with his family. He's pretending to be this dude named Pete, who he, whom he met in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the family is uh, like bail bondsmen. So there's each episode, each a few episodes in there. Probably maybe half of them or a third of them are like, okay, which which ba- how are we gonna find this person to get their collect their bail or? Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of inject a lot of filler episodes in, in that way. Yeah, but they stay stay decent. Um, mm-hmm. There is a fair amount of character development. Brian Cranston plays like the villain. Yeah. Doesn't uh, he produce the show or something too? Probably. I think I you that, can yeah. kind of tell. Okay. Um, I think. Shit. I think in two episodes, mm-hmm. Brian Cranston has like a f- no shit eight minute monologue. <laughs> <laughs> like, He's like, I'm like, gonna give myself a big you can, monologue. Yeah. <laughs> you can t- and it's this happens twice. Like, <laughs> he plays like this kind con- like this gangster that runs um like card games. Uh huh. And he seriously has, like, you can tell it's like an ad-libbed monologue story from his childhood or something like that for, like, a solid five minutes of just (laughs) him going on and on. Yeah. Um, Twice. I think they're back to... I think they're in episodes that are (laughs) back-to-back. 
Wow. Uh, so you can get, it kind of shows they're trying to, they're trying to ring them out a bit. Yeah. But it stays decent. Um, with the exception of like every con, he, G. Vonnery BC is like the number one con artist of the world. And every, he's like infallible (laughs) and any con (laughs) that he tries to pull over is like spotless and unnoticeable in every single way. Yeah. Uh, but it's like a fun show. Yeah. What else? I think that's about it. <laughs> that's about it. We can think about it. A few things I wanted to mention. Been w- trying to watch a lot, actually. Uh, so a few of them are uh, Leftovers TV show, which I'll probably talk about more in coming weeks. Because the third season, third and final season is starting, um, I believe, like April 16th, I want to say. So pretty soon here from when we're recording this. And so I had seen the first two seasons and was really impressed. And so I got my wife to uh, binge the first two seasons to catch up so we could watch the third together. Um, This is on HBO. Not really one of their most popular shows. (laughs) I heard recently they got less viewers in the second season. (laughs) And so it's nice that HBO is just like letting them finish it um, for the small viewers. But the, the first season is like, probably one of the most depressing like seasons of any tv <laughs> you ever watch uh the premise is like you know i think like a third of the population like disappeared on one day randomly and then this is the show starts like after this happens basically and how people are then dealing with it like a year later and so there's all these like uh cults popping up and stuff but it's not quite what you think as far as like end of the world type mm-hmm. stuff um there's this really weird cult uh which i won't i won't describe too much for people who haven't seen it but um just like not something i've seen before kind of portrayed um and there's certainly people that they other cults where they're based around certain personalities and stuff you know um one is like a guy who can who can hug hug out your sadness <laughs> things like that if he gives you a hug um so, but, like, really fascinating. And then season two, they totally switched up things. Like, it moved, like the first season's about, like, a small town, and the sheriff is kind of the main character and his family and different people in town. And then, like, the second season, they just, like, move to a different town, and it's, like, totally different, like, story, kind of. Um, I mean, certainly based off the first part, but uh, the second season really blew me away and does some fascinating things and goes to places i never expected Mm -hmm. uh so i can't say enough about leftovers if people get a chance to watch it so i'm excited the third season apparently is in australia (laughs) we need more anthology kind of shows like that yeah can yeah have like obscure characters and then Mm -hmm. have them be done and have their story be told right right. yeah it follows kind of the main family to a new city in the second season Mm -hmm. but then like they introduce like a new family and their like main characters then (laughs) just like changes it up um but uh yeah so i will probably talk about more of that as we watch the third season but just want to mention for people to catch up um before that new season starts it's pretty amazing and people aren't talking about it that much a uh, few other things. Um, Train to Busan is now on Netflix. So uh, this is this Korean film. Basically, the tagline, all you need to know, is uh, zombies on a train. <laughs> um, 
so this this dad and his little daughter are um, taking a, a train trip um, to a different city, and uh, in in the meantime, a zombie uh, zombie outbreak happens, and so uh, they in the meantime, so people start getting infected on the train and stuff, and they have to deal with that. And then on the outside, they can't really stop at places because it's also breaking out there, mm. and they'll get caught. So. Pretty fun movie, um, if you think that kind of thing is fun. Just, like, uh, pretty well done, actually, for the premise. Um, kind of similar to Snakes on a Plane, but uh, but pretty fun. So, kind of like um, some films where, you you know, they have the different train cars, so they have to, like, you know, get through the different train yeah. cars, like, fighting through the zombies and stuff like that. So, uh, that's pretty entertaining, um, pretty recent. Um, I have a couple other things, but did you think of anything else? You want to talk about? Um, I had recently watched The Invitation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that you had mentioned that um, yeah. some weeks back. Mm-hmm. Um, did you on a, I watched it on a plane. So oh, really? The Invitation <laughs> yeah. on a plane. Uh, I really liked it. Um, there was a fair amount of, like, I could see the ending coming from, like, a mile away. Yeah. But I think that that's its intent. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Like that ominous, mm-hmm. um, this is the suspense. I mean, we talked yeah. about Alfred Hitchcock a fair amount, and a lot of that comes from that. Uh-huh. Um, I feel like that, uh, that background. They say yeah. that, you know, if you if you, it's like an old old school trope where you see a gun on the wall, like at some point in that story, that gun will get used, or yep. if it's mentioned in the story, then that gun will be used. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit of that, like right off the bat, where with the, the uh, I think the, one of the first, uh, not the first, but mm-hmm. like the, it's a the first uh, in the first scene, or when, yeah. once they arrive at the house, they break open a fancy bottle of wine. Right. Like, okay. Well, there, there's the not to ruin things, but mm-hmm. you know that's the gun on the wall kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I feel like the they did a lot of the backstory with the with the husband and wife and the the dead son mm-hmm. um like wonderfully yeah you know yeah i thought it was really well done mm-hmm. um yeah i mean i like the kind of ominous dread that was built the whole time yeah. and i and i i guess i kind of also liked about like i didn't know much about the film so i didn't know if they were gonna go with this is gonna have kind of like a subtler ending you know mm-hmm. where it doesn't go crazy or is it gonna just go crazy yeah. you know like I could, that was kind of the, uh, the, the trick for me of like, you know, it's getting weird yeah. and darker, but which way is it going to go yeah. in the end? You know, there was a, a solid, like two scenes where you kind of doubted the main character's sanity that mm-hmm. the husband character. Yep. Yeah. Um, it didn't go, it didn't last for too long, but there was, a, I mean, it, it, it kept up where you could, you kind of doubted that was you know whose whose perspective was real mm-hmm. um but uh, yeah i thought it was really well done yeah yeah I liked and then it a lot. the twist the twist on the twist yeah to spoil yeah. it with all the lanterns <laughs> uh-huh was cool too that yeah. was a like, really good kind of cherry on top yeah i like that and then i realized like later like the poster is um at least one of the posters uses just like that lantern yeah um and you don't really realize what that means until, until the until end. Until it's too yeah. late. Until it's too late. Yeah. Um, watch out for those lanterns, everybody. Uh, 
So uh, a couple other things, and then we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, oh, I wanted to mention a podcast, um, S-Town, uh, is a lot of people are talking about, I think. Um, we don't mention too many podcasts here, but there's been some good stuff out. So this is by uh, This American Life people that do that show. And I think even better than Serial, which got a ton of attention a couple years ago. And I think S-Town is, is even better. Um, not quite through to the end yet, but it's got a lot of like twists and surprises, but not in the sort of standard way that you think about it. And I really appreciate um, just kind of like it's... The way that it treats its subject matter, I think, is very mature and uh, empathetic and thoughtful, um, while till, still kind of telling this, like, really wild yarn. Um, I think it's kind of the classic, like, you know, um, reality is is much crazier than, than fiction. <laughs> you know, like, um, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. So, like, I, after the second episode, I, like, had to look online and be like, is this even real? Are these, like, <laughs> actors? Because um, it's kind of, the main, the main kind of central figure in it is so interesting um, that he almost doesn't seem real. So I wanted to mention that one. And then I've been watching uh, Chef's Table quite a bit um, recently when I have a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just sitting around with the family. And... I remember watching the first season some, and then I saw that there were new episodes, and I didn't realize they were already into third season. Yeah, um, that there were that many, and they also released like Chef's Table France. Yeah, the, um, Fr- the French, the French one. Yeah, and uh, so the photography is just beautiful in those, and I love hear- hearing people talk about the food they make and their philosophies on that. So uh, Mikey and I know we've been talking about like that might be a little bit of some side projects we're gonna do as uh, as Atwood Land Productions, but get into that a little bit. Do some experimenting on that uh, end. Some slow-mo. Yeah. Some slow-mo. Yeah. Uh, some time-lapse. I would yeah. recommend, uh, as far as food shows, mm-hmm. uh, Mind of a Chef. I think it's a, it's a PBS production. Yeah. Um, the first season is with a dude named J- David Chang. Uh, most of his food is Japanese or Korean in, in origin, but it's... Um, it's a really good, uh, I mean, it's all, all about food philosophy, and it's not just like a boring cooking show. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fair amount of travel and whatnot. Anthony Bourdain is the narrator, yeah. more, more so than in the, the, the latter seasons. Mm. Um, and I think they just released on Netflix the third season. Third se- yeah, that sounds right. With a, a woman whose name I can't remember, but she's mm-hmm. uh, based out of New York, okay. or a New York restaurant. Um and they, I mean, it's pretty basic topics, very simple topics for each episode, mm-hmm. um, but handled in a complex manner, you know, yeah. per, yeah. Per, uh, per chef or scenario or interpretation mm-hmm. and whatnot. Right. Um, and they're short episodes, so it's pretty quick. You know, it's a 20 minute quick. Yeah, that's a shorter you know, show yeah. than Chef's Table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my son's really been enjoying the opening, like, uh, time lapse of Chef's Table where they show... Um, things happening really speedily in the restaurants and mm-hmm. the cameras moving. So, uh, that's been cool. And I also, I think I figured out really what we're going to need to make the, our projects work, which is like the chef sort of like, uh, standing on like a beach 
sort of staring out into nowhere, yeah. like close-ups, and uh, thinking thoughtfully. So I think that's... Yeah. I don't know the why front, every chef seems to French do that on side. that show, but um, they're, sh- or they're, like, they're standing in the wilderness or on a mountain or something. Going to the farm so to, to pick their own microgreens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure they <laughs> do their, all the time. In their chef whites. Yeah, yeah. Um, or cooking the food on the beach or something yeah. at sunset. I'm sure that happens all the time. So, uh, but yeah, it is a beautiful show and, uh, I do appreciate, uh, that kind of, that kind of filmmaking. Think about that. Um, yeah, I think that is probably plenty for this week, uh, that we've talked about. And, uh, even though I have been watching some other stuff, we'll save that for another time. Um, cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Good evening.